Good day, my friends, and welcome to the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by the legendary Sergio Tacchini, brand worn by John McEnroe, Vitas Garolitis, Novak Djokovic, and Gabriella Sabatini. Check them out at SergioTacchini.com. Use the code SHAP30 in all caps at checkout to receive 30% off of your order. He grew up and honed his craft on the hard courts of Southern California, in Orange County to be exact, and is the most decorated college player to ever play, leading USC to four straight team titles and two individual titles. He won a staggering 72 matches in a row. In 2016, armed with a big serve, a monster forehand, and a wicked slice backhand, he got to 21 in the world. He has made $7.6 million on tour and has posted wins over Gasquet, Songa, Team, and Isner. Stevie Johnson is today's guest. You're in Cincinnati? Yep. And doubles today with Blumberg? Yeah, we play, you know, probably like five or six or who knows you know how it works you go straight to the courts practice warm up eat stretch yeah i think we're hitting it like two two to like three and then we'll just kind of hang around and cruise and hopefully the matches go relatively smooth no rain and then we'll we'll get out there and play and then get a win and we'll do it all again the next day gentlemen you hear has gotten to as high as 21 in the world he is the most decorated college player there's ever been orange county's finest stevie johnson my man thank you for coming on the show yeah of course uh, finally uh, glad to make it happen a lot of tete-a-tete trying to set this up <laughs> but it's great that we finally got it together as you know we do a five set format the first set is the off the court report you just won newport with blumberg a few weeks ago that's my hometown that's my home state not really my hometown but that's my home state <laughs> Uh, you let it slip that you were playing golf over there. <laughs> What's the story? Are you Was your golf getting better than your tennis or not yet? Yeah, you know, I, I would like my golf to probably be, you know, better than my tennis, I think, in a, in a fantasy world, um, just because that's maybe not, uh, not my professional sport. So it's something that, um, that I just love, love to do. You know, I've done that my entire life, you know growing up with my dad and that was kind of our escape from, from tennis. So for me, it's always been kind of uh, my escape from the, the fuzzy yellow ball, you know, chasing that around to go hit the, the little white ball that just sits there and you can make such a mockery of it. But um, uh, yeah, ha- I, I love Newport, Rhode Island. That event is um, incredibly unique, special in, in so many different ways, just because, you know, that's where the international tennis hall of fame is. So you, you, you get a sense of the history of the sport, the history of, you know, all the people that laid the groundwork for us to be able to play this sport uh, at, a, at, at this level, at, at professional level. So it's it's really a remarkable place. And, you know, had a had a great time there playing with Will. You know, his family is has has a place there. So, you know, was able to kind of get out and golf a little bit with him and uh, just learn, you know, learn a bit more about him and, you know, his kind of tennis uh, prowess and his uh, accomplishments. It definitely in college has, has been something that uh, – I followed very closely. You guys were playing a pretty nice track. You were making a little bit of an effort to get out to that spot, right? To Little Compton. Yep. Yeah. I mean, he's got uh, his fam, his like uh, his in or his family. You know, his mom's family, I believe, has places out there. And um, I had never been out there. You know, I've always spent my time in Rhode Island. Had been to, you know, you know, had gone to Providence, had gone to Boston. You know, all this, and just to see that beautiful little area was, um, it's just remarkable. I mean, that part of the world for us California people is, uh, is almost like another planet, you know, it's just, it's, it's extremely far away and something that, you know, I had never seen and it was beautiful. You know, the people there are all fantastic. And, um, you know, there's a reason why, you know, a lot of us play Newport every year because of the city and the people that uh, surround it. Stevie Johnson loving Newport, Rhode Island and all the little surrounding areas. Are you a, are you a match player when you play? Do you, are you guys big money players or do you <laughs> keep it, do you keep it pretty light? Um, I'll do I mean, it's funny because I get asked this question a lot. I'll do anything. You know, I like to I like to gamble um, just because, it. you know, we, we have pressure out there. You know, it's, I mean, I'm not game. I'm not, you know, betting Jordan type money by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> but it's fun for us to have a little competitive juice flowing out there. You know, when you're out there with your buddies, Sam, John, you know, any of the other tennis guys will and 
you know, I'll try not to bet too much money against Will because he's, um, he, he might be the best golfer. Him and Marty Fish probably that I've played with, um, you know, from the tennis tour, those guys are absolute sticks. Um, so unless they're giving me a, a healthy amount of strokes, I, I don't want to play those guys for too much money. And you guys won Newport. You hit like the shot of the tournament to win the first set. You went, you went low to the right, sort of a diving on your knees volley to win the first set. And that kind of propelled you guys to just muscle right through that final. You got to love bringing home the, the hardware if you're going to be out there, huh? Yeah, no, I mean. I've, uh, if, if somebody ever looks closely at my, my doubles records, my final, uh, my finals records, not stellar, uh, to say the least. I think before the Newport final, I think I was one in seven or one in eight, if I'm not mistaken, in doubles final. So I was looking to get off the schneid a little bit. We, Sam and I had won one, I believe in 2015. Um, and I hadn't won one since. So, and I had been in a lot of finals. And, um, so I was just glad to get that win, especially for Will. You know, that's kind of his hometown and he had so many friends and family there. It's, uh, and I had my father-in-law there. So it was a great week to just kind of spend, you know, just it's a very relaxing week uh, after a slam, especially after, you know, the stress and kind of everything that surrounds Wimbledon, you know, to kind of go to Newport, you'd be able to, you know, walk five, 10 minutes to the courts, walk down to the to the water for dinner. Like it's a very peaceful week. And to end that with a win to kind of kick off your U.S. summer swing is, you know, whether it's singles or doubles, you know, a win's a win. It's nice to be the last guy standing in any event. Yeah, and you've been playing pretty well. Let's move into the second set. This is the On the Court Report. Um, I have a bunch of things I want to talk about. Let's just get right into this. Um, Your opinion of the coaching experiment that has begun. Yeah, you know, I I think I I might have a different opinion than a lot of people just because I I played college tennis. So I was in the realm of where coaching was legal, kind of as I was progressing in my game, you know, like as a lot of players were playing futures, maybe at that point at, you know, 17 to 20, 21, 22, I was playing college tennis and, and was very comfortable with my coaches out there, you know, and I had a very good relationship with, with Peter Smith and, you know, George Husak and Brett Macy and Eric Amen and these guys who were my coaches at USC who I trusted. And, you know, it's one of those things where I thoroughly enjoy the coaching because I really do believe it's beneficial um, but you look at the history of tennis, you know, I do also like the fact that it's just me and the other guy out there. And, you know, I, and I feel like that's such a strength in my game to kind of see the match, see what my opponent is doing, see what, you know, I'm doing poorly, you know, all these things that you can kind of change and flip, flip the script in a match. And, um, you know, unfortunately I think they made the change for the wrong reasons. Uh, explain. Yeah. Just, you know, I think there's a lot of times where, where coaching is happening uh, during the matches and there's a lot of soft warnings, a lot of like, Hey, can you please not do that? Can you please, you know, and I felt like it was just, and I had this, a long conversation with, with the gentleman at the ATP, you know, when they were going through this Indian Wells earlier this year, like either enforce the rules or don't enforce them. Like don't change this because you guys don't want to enforce the rule. Like if somebody's breaking the rule, call them out on it. Like that that's my whole thing. Like from, court five to center court to the back courts at a challenge, whatever it is, like let, let's police and enforce the rules a, as they're written, you know, or, you know, you know, so I hope that's not the reasoning for it, but I feel like unfortunately that is the reasoning because, you know, there just wasn't a strict enough guideline to where, you know, guys were getting coached, but not getting fined or penalized for it. And it was giving them a leg up. So um, I, I think it's going to be interesting, you know, you know, it's, it's one of those things that, we've only had it for three or four weeks now. And, you know, I've definitely talked to my, my coach a few, few bits out there just to kind of get, you know, a couple of feedbacks, but it's, it's just one of those things where it's just going to change the game a little bit. And I'm going to, I'm interested to see what the players view is, you know, once we get towards later ends of the year. What can you tell us um, that we don't know about the Netflix show, the Netflix cruise? Give us something, man. <laughs> there's a lot of cameras. Um, really? There's a lot of cameras. Really? That, there's a lot of cameras that are floating around, you know, obviously they're following, um, you know, I, I'm going to be honest. I, I, I'm like such a, I'm so out of it, you know, in, in that regards, I know they're following like Ferratini. I know they're following Fritz. I know they're following Kyrgios. They're following a few of the women's, you know, so those guys are always on camera and, you know, so I, I try to kind of avoid those guys. I think at times just, <laughs> just to kind of stay away. And, um, but you know, look, there's some great characters, you know, 
I mean, I was speaking from my experience, like I'm a Formula One fan now. Like I enjoy the races on the weekend because no of the Netflix documentary. So, you know, I think it has the potential to open up a, a, a brand new, you know, avenue of, of, of viewership and, and kind of an, an open, open our world to it, you know, just because they see us on the court. They don't see everything behind the scenes or kind of what goes into the day to day, to day uh, you know, grind. Is there any truth to the strong rumor that Novak has put a uh, veto on the, on cameras on him? Is that true? Yeah. I don't know. You know, that, that, that one, I don't know, you know, to be honest, it's, we haven't seen Novak much this year for obviously a variety of reasons. Yep. Um, but um, you know, tennis is like, you, you see everybody all the time, but you also don't see every, you know, you kind of like, we're very, I, I kind of explain it, equate it to, we're very high schooly, you know, we're very clicky in a sense, not in a bad way, but like, you know, the older American guys hang together, the younger American guys kind of hang together, the the South American guys hang together, the French guys, the Spanish guys, you know, so we're, we kind of don't interact with those guys too often. You know, we kind of have our, I have my little pod of, of friends and, and guys that I hang out with and dinner. And, um, you know, that's kind of how we roll. And none of us old guys, Sam, John, myself are, are, are I think going to be too much on this Netflix documentary. <laughs> What is your understanding and opinion of the Novak situation moving into the Open? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's a bit un, it's extremely unfortunate. You know, I I don't see – I think it's a bit crazy to not let him into the States and to play. Um, but, again, that's my opinion. You know, I, I don't – I'm not somebody at the top that makes the rules, and, and I get – I get why the rules are enforced. I, I get all that, you know, I, I completely do. But now that we're two and a half years into this thing, you know, I, it seems to be a bit, um, a bit insane not to let him in. And I, and I don't think that we're going to get any guidelines changed before the open to, to let him in sadly enough. Cause he is, you know, even though he's, I don't know, seven or eight in the world, whatever he is right now, he's, he is the best player. You know, he's, I think him and, and no, or him, Rafa, like these guys are the best players and you want the best players to be competing at the slams at the highest level. Um, you know, whether you like Novak or not, he's, um, he, he's one of the goats and, and there's really no debating that. What's it been like to see Kyrgios go lights out for the last three months? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't think there's ever a doubt for the last, you know, however many years that, his talent level was off the charts. His tennis IQ is off the charts. Um, I don't think people realize that. I think they kind of see all the other things that maybe transpired during matches and, and kind of get a different view of him. Um, but if you play him, he's got one of the best serves in tennis. You know, it's incredibly, incredibly difficult to break him, which gives him a leg up, obviously, first and foremost. And, you know, with everything that surrounds his match, you know, people can call it whatever they want, you know, for, for everything that he does, but his ability to zero in and focus in on what his opponent doesn't like, like, and make those adjustments mid-match is truly remarkable. I mean, his IQ is off the charts and, you know, when he wants to, when he wants to be good, like at Wimbledon, you know, and he wants to prove that the guy is damn talented. I mean, there's never, never been a debate about that. What is it that the, the people watching on TV don't see about the serve? It's just, it's extremely hard to read. He can throw the ball in the same place and hit four or five, six different spots of the box, all at different speeds, at different angles, just kind of whatever he does, you know, like he's a great server and, you know, I'm a, an American, so I, I always equate this and I kind of say the same, I say the same about John. These guys are great pitchers. Like they know yeah. when they're down in the count 2-0, they need to hit a first serve, they're going to get a first serve. When they're, you know, when they're, when they need it, they hit their spot and they don't, they don't miss it. You know, these guys, and that's what makes them John, arguably the best server in the history of our sport. And Nick, who, you know, is not close behind, uh, in, you know, in my mind. It seems like he is laser focused on getting seated and trying to make a run. Um, do you know him? Do you, I, I know that you've played him. Do you ever speak to him? Has he told you anything interesting about, you know, how he's feeling? First and foremost, like, you know, it's, I try to, I, I got enough going on in between my own, you know, yeah. My, yeah. my own two ears that I try and kind of keep that, that, uh, that energy onto myself. But, yeah. um, you know, he's just an absolute, 
you know, phenom- I mean, the guys like it's hard to put into to words. You know, he's he's just a, he's a regular guy like in the locker room. He just comes in, bounces around, talks hoop, talks sports, you know, you know, look, we're there's we're a traveling circus. You know, we do the same show in a new city every week. And there's a vast majority of that are, you know, extremely good people to have in the locker room. And, and he's one of them. You know, he's he's somebody that comes in and smiles and, you know, he's he, he's somebody that light, you know, that kind of lightens the mood. So it, it's fun to have all these personalities and, you know, definitely like the Aus- the Australians and the Americans, we kind of all gravitate towards each other because, you know, we all, you know, we're just, you know, first language English speakers. So it's, it's one of those things like we're very, again, kind of that high school thing. We all kind of, you know, we go to our locker room at the open, like usually the Americans, the Aussie is the one corner, the Europeans are in one, you know, it's just one of those things where it's over time, you know, I've, I've just followed the, the groundwork that has been laid, you know, for the 20, 30 years before me. What has happened to the PTPA? There was a lot of momentum or maybe not, but there was something going on. And now there was momentum. It seems like it's been lost in the sauce. Is the PTPA still a thing? Yeah, no, it absolutely is. You know, I think it's been hard, you know, look, it's, I commend Novak and Vashik immensely for, for their efforts because look, there's, there was nothing like starting from the ground up. And, you know, I have the pleasure, you know, where I, where I live and train in, in California, I work out with a lot of NFL guys, baseball guys, you know, I, I kind of pick their brains a bit and, you know, they're, you know, floored when I tell them we don't have a union, we don't have a players association. And, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things where nobody is fighting on our behalf. And well, hold on, are- but don't say it that way. The union is the association. Right. Of course. I mean, of course. I mean, but we're, we're still like, you know, we're still on the ground floor, you know, we need to, but that's the problem, right? The union is the association. (laughs) Right. So, you know, it's hard when the, when the ATP, you know, basically kind of owns our rights and you're seeing that now with the golf thing and how much that has changed. And, and I think the golf is going to change. The PJ is, is going to change, you know, based on the live tour. I mean, that's just how it works. A competitive, entity that's you know now going to pay players to to do the same thing on a different tour you know i think we would have we would have a lot of tennis guys leave asap if if something like that started on 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 the tennis side just from a scheduling standpoint and and a chance to be around friends and family a bit more and not travel 30 35 weeks a year where are you at with ptpa are there still meetings or there's still yeah no there's still there's still a lot of correspondence there's still you know a lot of things that are going on you know and i'm somebody who realizes that this isn't going to change my career because I'm getting towards the end, but you know, I would like to see the tour and I would like to see the players who are 18, 17, 16, whatever, who have absolutely no idea what this life is to come into something better than I had it. And I had it and I had it good. And it's changed tremendously in my 10, 11, 12 years from, from being out here. And I, that's just, I think, what the end goal is, is to leave the sport in a better place for the next generation. And then for them to leave it in a, you know, for the next generation. And, you know, I just want this sport to grow. This sport has given me, you know, so much. And, you know, it's, it's now my time to feel like to kind of finish my career on a, on a strong note in the next, you know, so many years and, and to kind of leave it in a better place. What has your opinion been of ATP leadership? Gaudenzi, Massimo Cavalli came in essentially, in a tough spot, right? COVID began and that's as bad as it could have been for tennis. No fans, tournaments, you know, essentially falling apart. Right. No, no, look, you know, they definitely came in at a bad time. I absolutely give these guys lots of empathy on that, on that regard. Um, But from a, a business standpoint, you know, we have a couple guys that, you know, in my opinion are extremely smug, arrogant, who don't really know how to talk to the players. And that's very unfortunate because one guy was a former player. And, you know, I feel like if you're coming in in a position of power and you were a former player, you would have the players respect the players. And I don't think he has that. And it's very frustrating because they are not afraid to send players correspondence with half truths and misleading information and, and whatnot. And it's very frustrating. So I, I look, I don't have any, I've sat down with them for a couple hours many times and it, 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 I just kind of leave with a sour taste in my mouth. Again, I'm not in their position. So obviously, you know, the hard thing is with our sport is as players, we don't get, you know, 
we get a we get a deck of cards with 30 cards in it. They have the whole deck. You know, they get to see all the numbers, everything. And we don't get to see we don't get to see the innards. We don't get to see like, you know, the the, the meat and potatoes of, you know, of the financials of the tour. And and I think that's hard. And it's one of those things where you, it's it's tricky because our sport is we're all independent contractors. So we're all not all of us, obviously, but there's a lot of us that are short sighted that just see the next paycheck in front of them. And they want to, instead of seeing the the long-term goal of, you know, look, we're missing out here. We're doing this we're doing that. And it's one of those things. And it's, um, and it's frustrating for the ATP to kind of have this 30 year plan get put in place. I, I couldn't tell you of another sport that has that, you know, there's, there's kids that there there's, there's people that aren't even close to being born yet that are going to be one in the world that this is going to affect. And I think that's absolutely crazy because these guys have no opinion, no, no say into in how the sport's going to work. So it's one of those things where I wish, you know, we had a bit more um, communication with our leadership and a bit more, you know, open, open book policy to, to say the least. Do you guys ever just storm in and just say, Hey man, why is the money in Italy down when these this place is packed to the top of the rafters. Yeah, look, we, I've had these conversations before. You know, we, there's a lot of tournaments that we're using COVID, um, uh, let's call it, re- not restrictions, but COVID rules of like spectatorship and viewership and cutting prize money and doing this to their advantage rather than, you know, what the actual numbers were. Just because a tournament seats 5,000, but their average attendance over the last 10 years was 500 doesn't mean, you know, they, they, they cut their stadium in half. So now it's a 2,500 seat stadium, but they're still getting the same number of people, but now we're cutting all of our funding in half or by, and it's like that kind of stuff really bothers me. And for those guys not to go to bat for us to kind of let that happen, especially at some of the master series and stuff that were not uniform, you know, all the way around, you know, every tournament of those is different. And it's, it's one of those things where, you know, again, like if we could see every piece of information, it, I, I maybe our opinion is different. But from what we get and from what we have at our disposal, it's not good. Inside baseball, a lot of politics between the tournament tournament directors and the tour. It's everybody sort of floating in the same water, floating down the same uh, river. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some of us just have two uh, paddles, and, and some of us have half a paddle. That's the, that's the unfortunate issue. Let's move into the third set. This is the portion of our show where we talk about your career. Stevie, where does your tennis actually begin? It begins at a young age. Um, You know, I was long before I have any recollection of it. um, I was, you know, I have pictures and videos, obviously, you know, VHS tapes, if we can still find. um, Before you could remember. So three years old? Yeah, I mean, I was two, three, four years old, like, you know, with a racket hitting balls. I mean, the stories I get now, obviously from my mom, you know, after my father passed, it's, I was always just, I wanted to be outside. I wanted to play, play with a ball. I wanted to play with whatever it was, hockey stick, golf club, baseball, bat, tennis racket, you name it, you know, and, you know, I played my first tournament when I was five. I, I have the, I have pictures, you know, I could barely look over the net and I'm probably getting just dummy by some like 10 year old who's twice my size. And, you know, just kind of bullied me around, but it's, um, it's something that I've done my entire life. I've, you know, I've loved, I've loved the sport. You know, I, I love the camaraderie. I love the, the time I got to spend with my dad, the time that. So hang on a second. So you, you, you grow up in Southern California, you grow up in, in Orange County. Is it, is it Irvine? Where, where are yeah, you? So I grew up in the city of Orange, which is kind of like right in the heart of Orange County. But, you know, for the first, probably, 10 years of my life, um, you know, when I was born, my dad was at a club in Irvine, California. So I spent a lot of time there um, and basically every afternoon, every chance I could all summer, you know, during the camps and whatever. I was just there all the time. And is your father, was he a good player? No, I mean, (laughs) I don't want to, don't want to, you know, knock the man while he's not here to defend himself. But, um, you know, he was a basketball player. He was basically five, two in high school. And then all of a sudden grew basically nine inches in like one year and couldn't run up and down the basketball court. And at the time, like, 
you know, he's like, I love sports. I want to play. So they're like, Oh, just go out for the tennis team, whatever, you know, kind of thing. And so he went out for the tennis team at orange high where he met my mom. And, you know, then he played for a couple of years at a community college and then basically got a summer job coaching and just fell in love with it. And since he was 20, 21, it had just done it ever since. And, you know, the tennis community is so small in a sense, you know, it's, it's one of those things where that that's where he kind of grew up and, you know, became a, became the man that he was and, you know, kind of got me into the sport. And, and, and how'd you start getting good? Were you practicing with really good players? I mean, to be in California, there's nothing like that. Yeah. That's the beauty of our sport, you know, especially where I grew up, like there was no shortage of good players, no shortage of people that could play with me. When I was younger, I was, you know, I had given, you know, God given talent, you know, I was, you know, I can look back and see that, you know, I was, I was good when I was young. I was very good. I was in the 12s and 14s. I was one in the section, one in getting close to one in the country. And I played half the year basically because in the summers I would play baseball and in the winters, like there was basketball season for us. So it was just one of those things where I, I didn't play tennis full time until I was probably about 16. Um, and, but yeah, I grew up and I was just talented and I really just loved the sport. I just loved going out there and competing. Did you travel internationally as a junior? Did you ever play? Never no. once. No, no. I mean, I did the La Petitas trip with you USA did. when I was, I think, I think that's an 11 or 12 year old thing, if I'm not mistaken. And that was the only trip I ever did, you know, how'd you I, do? I, kinda, I lost first round or, you know, I wasn't, you know, I was the year, I mean, Donald Young and I were the same year and he just dominated the world <laughs> at, at that point. So he, he won everything. Um, but you know, I, I see these like, you know, they'll come out every once in a while. You'll, you know, you'll make the round of 32 or 16, whatever at a slam. It'll be like, oh, these guys ITF rankings when they were at their career. And my highest ranking was like 800 or 900 or something. Cause I played one tournament at Carson, you know, mm-hmm. like we had the international spring championships or whatever it was called. And I played that event, but I never had to travel outside of um, the country because Southern California tennis was so good. And I was playing other sports, you know, tennis wasn't my life, wasn't my priority until you know, I became not, I'm mean, not as a mature 16 year old, but someone who was like, wow, like I actually like this sport the best. I want to kind of see where it goes and where it takes me. And, and that was one of those things where I just really, really enjoyed. And how did you decide that you weren't good enough to turn pro when you were at what, what made the decision to go to college? That's an easy choice. You know, I was always going to go to school. There was zero, okay. zero, zero, zero doubt in my mind. Um, that I was going to go pro before college. Um, sorry, you know, look, sorry, you said that wrong. You were going to go college before pro. Sorry, yeah, I'm sorry. Yes, that I was going. I was always going to go to college. Like my mom's a a math professor at uh, Mount Sac yeah, College in in Riverside County. So for me, you know, my dad was very close with a bunch of the college coaches. His one of his best friends, Rance Brown, who's one of the is the UCLA women's coaches, basically like a second father to me. He's somebody that I grew up with nonstop and kind of got me around that college environment, got me around just the, you know, everything that goes with it. And I'm very lucky, obviously, now that I sit 10 for, geez, 11 years removed from being at USC, that that was the the best choice that I had ever made. Did you ever practice with Pete at UCLA when you were young, before college? Did you ever practice uh, with no, like Chang did, or any uh, of these? No, I did. Uh, I practiced with Pete a few times while I was in, in college, you know, while he was kind of like get ready for, you know, a champions event or whatever. And the first time I remember I was, you know, a bit in awe, obviously. It's somebody that I had spent time around because Rance was obviously with Stella Sampras. That's why Stella. I asked. So for our listeners, Rance Brown is like the co-head coach of – UCLA women with Stella Sampras, the longtime coach of UCLA women, Pete's older sister. And Pete lives close by UCLA. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So all that. So, I, I mean, I have assigned, you know, Pete shoe in my, in my room, you know, all this stuff growing up, you know, just because, you know, we're so close. And so I, when I got a chance to hit with him, it was just like the dream come true. And still he would had been retired for however many years. And you could still tell like, what made him so good, even when, you know, the guy probably hadn't picked up a racket for two months and he could still go out there and do little things that were just unthinkable. You, you know, it's, yeah. you, you just try and pick up as much as you can from these guys that are, you know, who had, I mean, at the time, 14 slams seemed un, unreachable. And unfortunately that's, that's not the case anymore. It's just the three crazy. guys blowing past them. 
Pete's just so low key that he's he's no longer getting the credit he really deserves for being so elite. Always going to be USC? Was there ever uh, a thought of going somewhere else? I mean, I looked at a few different universities. I looked at Boise State because of Greg Patton, who was somebody that I was very close with, with him and my dad. I looked at uh, Illinois and Texas A&M. And then I looked at UCLA, but not seriously. I, I really didn't want to leave Southern California. And at the time, you know, USC is expensive. There was no scholarship really available. Um, you know, it's one of those things where things just didn't really line up. You know, when I signed um, to go to USC, I signed for 17%. Um, you know, it was one of those things where like that was by far the lowest and worst offer I got. But I, I just felt that Peter was the right coach for me and USC was the right place for me. And and it was just one of those things where everything kind of is a fairy tale ending at this point. Coach Peter Smith, uh, the longtime no and now no longer coach of USC. Did you get better at USC? Yeah, I mean, almost immediately. Look, what I lacked um, that I think a lot of maybe kids that go pro prior to, you know, the age of college is I lacked work ethic. I, I lacked a discipline of, you know, I was talented. I was, I was good, but I wasn't good enough, you know, and I got to college. I had some great older guys on the team, Robert Farah, for example, who's, who, who's been on the tour for, for a long time and number one in the world in doubles who their work ethic was something that I really was, I looked up to and I, and I didn't realize how much work it took off the court in the gym. And that's something that I gained tenfold at USC. Like I, I love working out now. I love getting in the gym. I love putting in the hard yards because I don't want to lose a match ever based on my fitness level. Cause that's something that's strictly in my control. I might play terrible tennis on any given day, but I don't want to lose a match because I was, I wasn't prepared physically. And that's something that I've taken with me for the last like 12, 13, 14 years. And, it's something that I'm, I really pride myself on. And did you enjoy like just these mad dogs up in the stands and the screaming, <laughs> like, like the, the crazy college tennis atmosphere? Do you, did you gravitate to it or did you have to get used to it? No, I loved it. Look, you know, for me, tennis is a bit too stuffy and stale. Like I want there to be noise. I want there to be cheering. Like I don't want that. It's, I completely get when, you know, it's, six all in Wimbledon final and you can hear a pin drop in there. Like I, I completely get that aspect of tennis and I love that. But you know, when sometimes when you hear like, you know, a kid coughing in the 75th row and like you have to stop the match because you know, it's like, come on, like let's play tennis. Like let's play. I, I don't know. Like I'm probably in the minority on that, but I, I love to have some noise. I want to, I want tennis to be fun and exciting. I, I don't want to like exclude kids because they feel like it's, not fun it's not exciting i just i just feel like there there can be more buzz and, and jump to the sport and i love that part about college tennis sometimes maybe across the line but um for the most part you know i love winning in front of a home crowd and getting that cheer and then i also love winning in front of uh, an athens crowd and kind of keeping them you know at bay who was your biggest rival through your time at us and for our listeners if you don't know this when Stevie played at USC, they won four straight national championships and you won the individuals twice. Yep. And then the biggest thing you did, well, the most insane <laughs> thing you did is you won 72 straight matches. Yeah, that's, I mean, <laughs> I just kind of look back and laugh. I just think it's madness. Um, I, I try not to even look all right. Hang on, but back broken. to the, sorry, back to the question. Who was your number one rival? Individually or as a team? I guess both. Yeah, I mean, probably individually at, at, for overall my four years, it was probably Bradley Kwan. He played at Stanford. We played, I mean, we played 4,000. He grew up in San Diego. We played 4,000 times growing up. We played, I don't know, 10, 12 times in college, probably singles, you name it. Like yeah. the Stanford, USC match, everything. It was just always a fun battle with somebody who I consider a very close friend. And, um, like I think our biggest rival uh, in college was UCLA since we would play them three, four times a year. Um, they would generally get the better end of us as a team. Um, I personally never lost to them in, in, in a singles match, but um, you know, sometimes we, we didn't uh, have the, the strongest resolve against those guys. They were a very talented group. And then, you know, once we got to NCAAs, when you had to play three, four days in a row, I think our toughness and our um, grit, uh, 
came into play. And, and, you know, that was, that was key for our teams and obviously health and, and a lot of things factor into that to being healthy at the end of the year. And we, we had a lot of, a lot of that go our way. How did you get better X's and O's? Did your forehand get better? Did your serve get better? I mean, everything got better. Look, that yeah. that's what you, I mean, that's the easiest answer and it's cliche, but as an athlete, I mean, even to this day, like I, I am trying to get better each and every day I walk out there, whatever it might be. Um, and until that day no longer becomes feasible physically, mentally, emotionally, whatever it is, that's, you know, that's how I want to see my career. And, um, you know, Peter put in a lot of time, a lot of effort. He's somebody that I handed my career over to, um, you know, basically hat in hand. And he's somebody that I trusted. And he just kind of gave me some tough love, you know, coddled me when I needed to hug, you know, but told me, you know, a few expletives and to toughen up when I needed to be, you know, when I needed to be tougher. And he's somebody that I am so incredibly close to that, you know, he's, he's still a very big part of my, my career and my life and my tennis life, both on and off the court. And, um, but everything got better. You know, I really honed in on what my identity was as a player. You know, I'm a, I'm a big serve, big forehand, athletic, dynamic guy who's going to, you know, make guys uncomfortable with my slice to hit forehands. And, and, and that's what I do, you know, and my, and that's kind of how I've molded my game. And, and my coaches since college, obviously Craig Boynton and now Mark and, and these guys have, have continued that aspect. Cause look, I'm an old dog. You're not teaching me too many new tricks. You know, we're going to, we're going to refine what, what I do best and, and try and sharpen those tools as much as possible. So is it true? Do I have it right that you're three credits short from graduating? Yeah, I'm actually. I, I, I re-enrolled. I'm five, does, I'm five sorry. classes short now, unfortunately. But um, well, hold on. So I'm you're getting, so you're five classes short. Yep. And was that a result of turning pro? Yeah. So I would have graduated in four, basically four exact years. But I took the fall off of my senior year, so the fall of 2011. Um, and I so from May of 2011 till basically Jan, first week of January 2012, I played. I don't know, 12, 13, 14 pro events. I played a completely pro schedule. I still lived at the university, trained there, practiced there when I was home. But, you know, I took that fall off. So I didn't go to a class and basically gave half the scholarship back to the university so they could get, you know, players in and we can, you know, go for that fourth title. And, you know, from the day we won in 2011, when we beat um, Virginia in the final, I knew I was coming back. I mean, there was no doubt in my mind, um, a lot of people question that fact, but um, good thing that it's not their career; it's mine. And you know, I don't want to live with any regrets and and look back with with anything like that. So, oh, um, was that a thing that people thought you should have turned pro? Yeah, I mean, at the time, I had won. Yeah. Let's see, three. We had won three straight team titles. I just won individual title. I'd won thirty five or six matches in a row, whatever it was at that point. You know, people were like, "What's left to prove? What's left to accomplish? What's right. left?" You know, and there had been one team. It had been the Paul Goldstein four years at Stanford that had won four in a row. And I wanted to, I wanted to try and make history, you know, I didn't care. I mean, obviously it's a lot easier now because we did win the team and I won individual. I didn't lose a match, blah, blah, blah. But I wanted to come back and give it, you know, give it a shot. Like even if I would have lost, you know, I would have looked back with such regret and such different outlook if, if I did not come back and see it through and obviously fairy tale ending. Um, but that university and Peter and those guys had given so much to me and I wanted to give it back. And that kind of effort gets the USC band to play at your wedding, right? I mean, that's sort of. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it helps, it helps when, uh, helps when your wife was also a, a superstar stud at, at the university in volleyball. Um, and you know, that, that helps when you have a lot of, uh, USC faculty and staff, staff there. It's, um, it's a special place in both of our hearts. And I, I'm, you know, that that's the most important thing that I take from USC is my wife and she's the rock of our family. And now, you know, mom to our, our beautiful daughter. When did you crack the top 100? Took me a year. Um, took me basically, I finished school. I started my first pro first event as a pro was Newport in 2012. I took five or six weeks off after college to kind of decompress and get ready. Um, so basically it took me 12 months. I won a challenger Nottingham in June of 2012. 13 and I cracked the top 100 that right at Wimbledon 2013 was in the main draw and then um 
you know, dropped out of the top 100 at the end of the year. And then ever since then, I've been in, in the top 100 every year since. You take that fall semester off your senior year, you play pro tournaments as an amateur. Where did your, did you, did you move your ranking significantly? Yeah, I think I finished around like that year, 2011. I want to say like around three or 400. You got something yourself like to that. three, 400. Um, so like that way, when I started right away, like in June, I had, I had a ranking. I could get into all the challenger qualifying, all the ATP qualifying, you know, all this stuff and um, worked out super well. And, you know, I just had the right kind of, I had had a taste of it. Now I came back, I, I went back to the drawing board. I was like, okay, I like this. I don't, I need to maybe make some changes to the, to this, to my team, to my schedule. I like to, you know, whatever it may be and was able to kind of make some adjustments and had some great coaches that kind of navigated the early parts of my career. And what was it like, like what kind of player were you when you were, when you got to 21, like how good were you playing? <laughs> I was, I was playing really well. Um, you know, I was confident, you know, that's obviously the most important thing, you know, it's actually pretty funny. Cause that was 2016, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, and the first part of the year, I want to say I was like four and 13 or something like that. And I was playing horrific. I mean, just horrific. And I get to Queens and I'm playing Gasquet and I'm literally getting my head beat in. It's rain delay, rain delay, play two games, rain delay, whatever. I'm just getting, I'm down like 4-1, double break, whatever. I remember my wife is there. Craig Boynton at the time is coaching me. And like, we're all in the players' lounge. We're all in different corners. I'm just a mess to be around. And, you know, whatever happens, I end up winning that match, make quarters of Queens. I win. Hang on a second. What do you mean? Hold on. So you turn it around. Yeah, like I just kind of say, you know, for lack of better verbiage, I just said, F it, let's just hit balls as hard as we can. Let's, you know, whatever. Like, I can't hit rock bottom anymore, you know, whatever. Like, can't let's, play worse. I, I can't play worse. I haven't won any matches this year. Let's just hit balls. And it worked, you know. So <laughs> then you kind of, you win a match. You win a second match. I had a good week there. And then I, I literally go and win Nottingham, my first ATP event, you know. So two weeks ago, I wanted to quit tennis. And now I win my first tour title. Like, it's. I'm on cloud nine. And then a week later, I'm in the fourth round of Wimbledon playing Federer on center court. I'm on cloud 10. And then, you know, three weeks later, I'm at the Olympics, you know, heartbreaking loss to Murray in the quarters of singles. And then later that day, Jack and I win doubles. Now I have a bronze medal. And it's just like the, the, the turn of events in the summer of 2016, I'll never forget. You know, I was still, I was 40 in the world, you know, like life was still good. You know, I just had a really tough start to the year. And then all of a sudden I get to the U S open. I'm the number one ranked American, um, you know, whatever. And it's just like, you know, three months ago, I wanted to quit tennis. You know, it's just one of those things where it's just hard to kind of comprehend. So you and I are, um, you know, part of a, a lousy club of uh, men that have had their dads pass and, I know that that really kind of twisted you out. I know that the immediate reaction was, was, was very bad. How did you process it and how have you come out of that? Yeah. I mean, first and foremost, didn't process it well um, as any. And, and, and he, he, that was an unexpected in his sleep thing. He didn't go slow. Yeah, no, I mean, and I, it's one of those things I, I wonder what's easier. Do you, do you want to be able to say goodbye to somebody and see them maybe potentially not be themselves, um, but you have a chance to say goodbye or do you want, you know, to like what happened to me, you know, do I want to be checking in for a flight at, uh, at LAX to go play Rome and get a call from my mom at six in the morning telling me that, you know, my dad had passed in his sleep and you, you know, one of those things. So it's, it was hard. Look, I, I didn't take it well. I mean, it was a hard, hard year and a half, two years um, to, to kind of comprehend and, and to kind of get over emotionally. Look, he was not, he wasn't my coach, obviously at the time, you know, he wasn't my, hasn't been my coach since I was 17 years old, but he's somebody that introduced me to the sport. He's somebody that I, I, he didn't have to be my coach. You know, I could call him any day, any day of the week and, and get his advice. And he was, I was so fortunate because he wasn't a tennis parent that was overbearing. You know what I mean? You hear a lot of those stories. He was somebody that if I called and needed advice, he was there to give it. He wasn't unsoliciting 
advice like hey like you're doing this poorly you know after a tough lot whatever you know like one of those kinds of things and it's <clears throat> i i never saw my my tennis career being done by myself um you know not that he was with me every week but there's still you know i come here to i'm going to go to the us open in two weeks and he's not going to be in the stands i go to wimbledon the last four years he's not in the stands i, I go to indian wells he's not sitting there like it's one of those things where it's, it's extremely hard for me um, to be at, at, at those events. And, you know, I, I didn't want to do this by myself. You know, I love the game. I love the sport. I love being a pro, all, all the things that go in, into it. But I, I never saw myself doing it by myself. And I think that, unfortunately, I don't want to – it didn't derail my career. But it, 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 it got me off the tracks, I mean, for, for a long time. And it, well, I was going to say it, it – it, 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 you, you tanked out yeah no i mean i was at a career high i was doing well and all of a sudden like you know i get this bombshell thrown at me and it, it's something that i've learned to deal with obviously um a lot of i mean a lot of people i've talked to a lot of different therapy a lot of different important people in my life that i have i have a rock and i can lean on um and isn't it true you were getting anxiety attacks that you were yep. like completely like like your heart would start thumping and you would yeah. get like no dizzy. i mean i would have basically panic attacks like while I played matches and um you know talk to Marty a lot about it you know he's somebody that that helped me tremendously uh oh, really through that because because really? he you know obviously went through it and he's very open about it and and I've been able to help some people with it now you know because they've heard my story and it's one of those things where you got to destigmatize it you gotta I, I don't see anything wrong with asking for help you know like you need help you need help and you know look people see us and this sport they see they see a different side of us there there's a human element to this you know like there's so many people that are hurting in the locker room because of a family member because of a child because of whatever the situation may be and it's like you know then they have to go out there and play and they and they don't have their best stuff that day and they people you know send death threats and send it's like guys like you know we're we're human like you know we don't come to your you know work while you're working on excel typing in spreadsheets and, and come heckle you you know like just because we get to do it in front of people, it's it's frustrating. I think that that part nobody takes in the human element to to our sport that we do have bad days and we do have days where it's just it's extremely hard to be a professional tennis player. And you know, it, you know, it's we're extremely grateful, but it's it's one of those things where not you know even for me now, like I still miss every single day. You know, I still miss my dad because every time I walk into a tennis court, I reminded of him, you know, if I'm, if I was, if he was just my dad, I don't know if he was a doctor or a lawyer, whatever it may be, I could go to the tennis court and that could be my escape. But every time I go to the tennis court, I picture me hitting serves or forehands with him when I'm five years old, having the time of my life. And now I, I don't get to do that. And, and that, that's, what's hard for me. Uh, it sucks when your dad dies. Um, how are you feeling about your tennis at the moment? Look, my tennis at the moment, I, I feel is in a good place. Um, unfortunately, there has been a few lapses in my matches that you just can't have in men's tennis, especially. Um, you know, I feel like if I look back at the last three or four months of my tennis, there's I, I can look back and see five minutes in every match where I just mentally didn't put it together or, you know, didn't put put it together and that cost me the match. And unfortunately that's how small our margins are. I feel like I'm playing good tennis, but there's two or three points. If I can change in, in every tournament, I feel like I'm one of the last guys standing. So it's one of those things where I feel like it's good, but you know, maybe there's, there's just a few things that I just need to clean up. You lost in the qualies uh, just the other day to Jaume Munar, who's um, a clay court, player how good is the level of men's tennis right now like because i always say to people i say listen he was 26 years ago he's 80 now but he may tell you that his tennis is better now because the level is so insane every time i turn on a match i'm like it's stunning to me yeah you know i think that's the biggest thing that has changed over the last 15 years of me playing pro events. I felt like, you know, the guys that are 150 to 200 now are 
just damn good tennis players. They're, they're so much better than they were um, at the beginning of my career. You know, I'll play a challenger, I'll throw in a challenger here and there, and I'm playing these guys. And, you know, where I a couple, you know, 10, 12 years ago, I felt like I could have just whacked these guys and not even thought about it until like the quarter semifinals. You know, these guys are good, you know, and I think that's, that's the beauty of our sport. You know, every week, you know, there's an 18 year old from wherever that's like, you know, just an absolute stud and you get a you have to go out and battle each and every week and i think that's the fun part about this sport and i I see the sport growing in that regards and that's that's very that's great to see the the depth and level of our sport you know becoming deeper and deeper let's move into the fourth set this is the 10 ball scramble i say it and you say what comes in your mind you ready all right i'm ready your favorite player growing up Federer. Favorite player now? Better. On the women's side, is there a woman that you love to watch play? I was, th- I assumed it'd be Steffi Graf, the way you play. Yeah, but- I mean, honestly, I, I just now, um, you know, that more I've got into it, I like watching, like, or did, I guess, watching Ash Barty play because she played very similar game to myself, and to kind of see how she navigated it was, was, was truly remarkable. Your favorite tournament? Indian Wells. Favorite city? Manhattan Beach. Why? That's where I live. That's home, baby. When I get to sleep in my own bed, that's life. Big entourage or lean and mean? Lean and mean. What is a TUE? A therapeutic use exemption. I have none of which. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, you know, there's some people who have TUEs for certain, you know, deficiencies of like, you know, I know guys have like grass allergies, so they have to take like certain type of um, decongestants to, to literally be able to play like Wimbledon and whatnot, which is not allowed under normal circumstances for our sport. So they get those TUEs. And then there's probably some TUEs that are maybe a little phony for, um, you know, maybe a, a few doctors have written some special notes for guys to, to, to get, you know, certain advantages. But, you know, it's one of those things where you, you kind of hope people are above board. Is it, is it true that um, some of some of the players are have TUEs for Adderall and they're basically like laser focused on the court <laughs> and it seems a little bit suspicious? So in other it, words, they yes. say they have ADD. Yeah, the, the the short and long answer is yes. Box etiquette. Yeah, I, I yeah, I think it's I think it's appropriate, but I also think that you know I have no problem when when coaches or or boxes get up and and cheer for their, their guy. That's what they're paid to do. And that's, they put a lot of hard work and, and blood, sweat and tears into their player. And, and I would expect Mark and everybody in my box, if they want to get up and cheer and, and get, get loud and, you know, get behind my back, they put in a lot of work behind the scenes as well. But what about, is, is there anything that someone can do in a box that can really get you upset? Yeah. I mean, look, if, if somebody's in another box talking to me or saying something to me, that's that's another issue. Um, I'll I'll take exception to that, and um, not afraid to to speak my mind. I'm not somebody who's going to hold back. Um, I'm pretty I'm a pretty honest honest guy. Um, I, I, I call a I call a spade a spade. The most cavalier thing you've ever done with prize money, straight out of the office. I told myself I was never going to buy a car. Not never going to be one of those guys. Like when I turn pro, you know, whatever. Like you see all these other guys do it, and I'm like, ah, that's stupid. And U.S. Open 2012, I turn pro, have a great summer, and there's a new BMW in my driveway. Stupid on my behalf. You bought it right out of the box. You bought it right out. Yeah, I just called the guy, said I want a BMW X5, send it over, and like did it. Three years later, I sold it. I was like, this is so stupid. What am I what? doing? And I've had a Jeep ever since. What teams do you support? Um, Angels first. Angels and Ducks. I'm an Orange County kid. Um, those are my two teams that I grew up going to always. I love those teams to, to the end of time. They may not be very good at the moment, um, no. sadly, but, um, and then uh, on the football front, as soon as the Rams moved back to, to LA, you know, we didn't have a team in LA. So about six years ago when they moved back, uh, I became a Ram, a Rams fan. So it's been, uh, it's been, it's been, a, they were, they were good last year, thankfully for my other teams haven't made the playoffs in a while. You went to USC. I mean, do you have like 30 friends that are, that are pro athletes? Yeah, I have a bunch of friends um, that that are pro athletes, and where I train, there's a lot of guys that are, you know, 
that, that train there for pro football guys in the off season, baseball guys. So it, it's, it's such a fun mix. I, I personally enjoy getting away from the tennis scene to do my training just because I like to train with other guys. I think we push each other, you know, obviously I'm not um, doing the same workout as, as the offensive lineman for, for, you know, for, for some of the teams, because, you know, I just, I'm not bench pressing 500 pounds and trying to move people. I move a, you know, a three ounce tennis ball. So, but it's just fun to kind of get their perspective, their personality and their, their excitement for the game. And we just, I think we have a new, an appreciation for everybody and what they go through. Serena. She's the goat, you know, women's tennis, no doubt about it. And it's going to be, it's going to be sad to see her go. I mean, she's what she's done for the game of, of tennis is, is I, I don't think you can kind of put it into words. What is the key to if what is the key to effectively knifing a slice back in? Uh, commitment. You know, you got to get your you got the footwork is key. Getting there with your legs, committing to the shot, lots of repetition. Obviously, it's one of those things where you can look at it as a weakness. Uh, where you know, you, you know, I may not look like the prototypical tennis player, but I use it. You know, for me to make guys uncomfortable to make it. Um, to get to my forehand, to, to kind of lift the ball so I can hit forehands. And, you know, uh, some guys really don't like the slice, and there's a few guys that really don't mind the slice. So it's one of those things where I find both of those co- sides of the coin, you know, a lot of fun because I like playing the guys that don't like it, obviously, because I can kind of do whatever I want. And there's some guys that just have no issue with it. Now that – and when I get to play them again, I try and do something different. You know, that's the fun part. It's like playing chess out here. Who has the best slice backhand in tennis? I'd like to say myself, um, you know, as of right now. Um, but there's a lot of guys. Feliciano Lopez, phenomenal slice. You know, Federer, phenomenal slice. Like, these guys that just can move the ball in and around the court is just it, – it, it just adds such a different dynamic to the game, and it makes it very uncomfortable. What about Dan Evans' slice? You played Dan Evans? Very good. Look, Dan Evans and I play extremely similar. We played each other, I think, only once. And, and I just kind of laughed. Like, I was like, God, like – because he would serve and do – I'm like, man, like I would hate if somebody did that to me and like all of a sudden he's doing it to me. And then I'm doing the same thing to him, and it's just kind of funny. We just uh, – I just thought it was like a funny matchup where we're literally trying to do the exact same thing. So the match was kind of like awkward in a sense because each one of us is trying to hit like little poke and prod slice, kind of come forward, hit our forehand, serve in volley, whatever. And it's just one of those things where it was just kind of like we each know exactly what we want to do. But now one of us is going to just do it a little bit better today or, you know, one of us is going to hit a great shot on a break point, whatever it may be. Size of your grip? Four and three-eighths. How do you string the racket? I string it with the gut in the main and poly tour pro uh, in the crosses. Tension? 47 in the main, 45 in the cross. Let's move into the fifth and final set. This is the king of the court. If you could be the king of tennis and make a change in the sport with a swing of the racket, no aggravation, what would it be? No backhands, just slices. Play tennis, just forehands and slices, and I think I'd be, I could get to probably number one in the world. I, I think, personally, that's a, that's, a, that's, <laughs> that's a cocky opinion, I think, but if we could take out backhands, I think I'd be pretty darn, uh, I'd be even better. I was pretty good, still am, still am doing all right, but um, um on a different note, I think I would just try and shorten the season somehow. You know, it's it's hard because we're all independent contractors. We all we all like to make money. I mean, that's kind of we're all greedy in a sense. And but it it is crazy to think that you know now our schedule. You have Davis Cup being the week of Thanksgiving. You have literally three weeks off, and then you go right back to ATP Cup, which is the late in December. It's like no other sport does that. No other sport, and it's. And it's hard because our sport is so – it's week-to-week driven. You better put your best foot forward every week. You can't – you don't have a three-year deal with the Lakers. You know, you can't take a year, a year and a half off, maybe sit on the bench for a couple of years and, and kind of pull it together and get a new contract. So it's one of those things where every week you got to put your best foot forward. Every week you got to put your best foot forward. Stevie Johnson, listen, this was a pleasure. When do we see you next? Will see me at uh, I have doubles here in Cincinnati, uh, and I have Winston Salem uh, the following week, and then we go up to New York for the the mecca of tennis in the states uh, at the U.S. Open. Thankfully, it'll be full crowds and full capacity, and we'll get the the chaos and the just the buzz around tennis that uh, 
that we all love uh, up in NYC. Do you enjoy going to New York City? I have said this for years. I would never in my wildest dreams live in New York. I couldn't do that type of pace. But when I'm there for the Open, I, I really do enjoy it. You know, I love the, the, the buzz and the excitement, just the New York City. But if I was there 52 weeks a year and I had to fight people on the street corner to go get a bagel and a coffee, like that's just that's just not my personality. But I thoroughly enjoy being there for the tennis every every year. Hey, man, good luck this week. Good luck in the coming weeks. Maybe we'll see you. I expect we'll see you in New York. Stevie Johnson, you are released. Thank you, sir. Huge thank you to Stevie Johnson. And thank you to Sergio Tacchini. See them at SergioTacchini.com. Use my code, SHAP30, in all caps, at checkout to receive 30% off of your order. Max Loeb edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.